probably the most unnatural of human virtues. I don't think we come about it very naturally. Our natural bent is to think that we're more special in some way than someone else. And, and the world calls it self-esteem, but the word calls it pride. And anybody can easily be caught up in it. So, you know, one of us is no better than the other. I remember years and years ago when uh, I did my very first study here for the women's Bible study. And um, I was scared to death because it's a fearful thing, not just to stand before you, but before the Lord teaching his word. And so, of course, I was very nervous and it was kind of difficult. So after I came down and... Trudy just kind of, well, maybe if you had gone up the way you came down, you would have gone down the way you came up. <laughs> and I just hung my head. <laughs> and I wasn't, didn't think I was being prideful. I was just scared to death. <laughs> but it's so easy for us to kind of give that, Appearance, that fragrance of pride that, that, the, that the Lord just hates. It was an old Southern pastor and evangelist by the name of uh, Buddy Robinson, and he was quoted to have said, pride is the only disease known to man that makes everyone sick except the person who has it. <laughs> and ain't that the truth? So tonight we're going to look at how we are called to be humble, especially as it applies to the unity of the church. And in particular, we will see that Christ-like humility is the only way we can carry out our calling to be one with each other and the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you now in Jesus' precious name, and we just thank you and praise you, Father, that we have your word and your truth, Lord, that instructs us and guides us and directs us in the behavior and the expectations that you have for your children, Lord. So we just ask now, Father, as daughters of, of Christ, Father, that we have humble hearts to hear and to listen and to take to heart the things that your word has told us, Father. And so we just ask now that our hearts be fertile and our ears eager to hear the things that are truth to us, Father, and, and that will glorify you. And we just ask these things tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. So as Gloria shared last week, Philippians is a letter filled with joy. Paul has no real doctrinal or theological acts to grind with this church. There are no stern words of correction, such as those that he directed to the Corinthian, Galatian, or the Colossian churches. In chapter 1, we learned of his deep affection for this church and that it was a refreshing source of joy for Paul as it was the first church he founded in Europe on his second missionary journey. And he visited this church on at least two other occasions during his third missionary journey as well, and we find that in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 5 and Acts 20, verse 6. So Paul had a warm and affectionate connection with the people here. Not only was he a doting spiritual father to the Philippians, they were also staunch supporters of his ministry, and we'll see that more when we get to Philippians chapter 4. Paul had a very close and intimate shepherd flock relationship that prompted him to write this letter of thanks and encouragement to maintain harmony within the body of Christ through an attitude of humility. So tonight we'll see the various ways humility is at the core of our relationships toward each other and the unity of the church with practical examples for us to follow. So tonight we'll look at the harmony 
of humility, the model of humility, and the ministry of humility. Verses 1 through 4 address the harmony of humility. It says, therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Therefore, here follows several points Paul established in chapter 1, so we need to kind of briefly touch base back there so that we can connect the text with the context. And last week, Gloria talked about how we could learn from Paul's actions, attitude, and advice in his circumstances, how we were to become slaves to Christ, lifting up each other in prayer, being encouraged, victorious in the word, and standing together against our common enemy, Satan. Here in chapter 2, Paul continues to emphasize harmony and unity within the church, focusing on the attitude necessary for it to exist and thrive. Our attitude or mindset in the church of God is to be humility. The harmony of humility is not an unusual theme for Paul in his epistles. He shared this same principle in Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, calling that church to walk in all lowliness and gentleness, to keep the unity of the spirit in one body, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God. And he gives similar instruction in Colossians 3, 12 through 15, telling them to put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, and long-suffering to enable them to the calling to be of one body in the Lord. And then again, in Romans 12, uh, verses 3 through 5, Paul speaks to the harmony of humility as we are one body in Christ. So repeatedly, he repeats this theme, this attribute that he calls us to in our, in our conduct in the church. But before we get too far into the unity theme, I just want to make a couple of things clear. First of all, unity is not uniformity. That is not what that means. Some people take oneness to mean sameness, and that's not what God intended at all for his church. He allows diversity in the body of Christ. Romans 12, 3 through 8 reminds us that we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function having gifts differing according to the grace given to us. And 1 Corinthians 12, verses 20 through 25 says that the eye doesn't rule the hand or the head, the feet, but God composed the body that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. The harmony of humility is God's design for the many gifts and talents of his church to function as one entity in submission to him and to each other. Paul refers to the possible source of disunity that he discusses here. I believe he's referring to something in chapter 4 where he implores uh, Euodia and Synthache to be of the same mind in the Lord, in harmony through the spiritual bond that they share in Christ. And since Paul doesn't really mention any type of doctrinal issues, we can assume that their conflict was personal in nature and didn't have anything to do with theology or doctrine. Maybe uh, Euodia disagreed with how Syntyche delegated certain duties to other ladies in the church. Maybe the church auxiliary, you know, wasn't working right. Or perhaps one Sunday, Euodia was distracted and she just brushed by Syntyche without saying good morning. And she felt offended. 
These are the things that can bring discord to the church when all it would have taken was a humble spirit to avoid that disunity. And then let's remember Mary and Martha. And Martha was bent out of shape because Mary chose to sit at Jesus' feet and hear the word while Martha was busy being the hostess with the mostess. So she took her complaint to Jesus and directed him to tell Mary to help her. At that moment, there was disunity in that home and in that family, even with Jesus in the room. So that just tells us, ladies, that even with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we can lose our humility in Christ. One family member in this household was at odds with the other. Think how far a little humility on Martha's part would have gone to diffuse that situation. And Paul could also speak from his personal experience regarding disharmony due to personal conflict. Remember, he and Barnabas had a very, very sharp parting of the ways over whether or not to take John Mark with them again after he had deserted them when they were busy establishing some of the early churches. And I've seen disharmony even touch our church, especially among our relationships as women. Someone will get caught up in what someone else said or didn't say. One will get offended because another one didn't include them in some group activity. And because we tend to share our feelings so freely with each other, we tell another sister what happens. And before you know it, it goes viral. The whole church knows about it. This creates fractures and disunity in the body of Christ. So disharmony in the church doesn't always come from deep doctrinal divides, but can also come from our personal interaction and reaction to one another. And that tells me that it's a matter of the heart not yielding to the spiritual submission that we're called to in Christ. In other words, our flesh overrules the spirit and creates individual conflict that leads to corporate disunity. Therefore, we must practice the harmony of humility to maintain healthy personal relationships and a healthy church. The spirit has to reign over the flesh. Paul knew these women, having previously served with them, most likely in the founding of the Philippian church. They probably had a lot of influence given their position there, and their discord could have been very disruptive to the rest of the body. We must be mindful, ladies, of our attitude and how the way we treat others affects those around us. We never know who's watching us or how our behavior influences others. Our example can set the tone for others to follow. Here are a few things from a study I, I recently listened to, and it was really a very good study um, about giving people a second chance, but it has to do with how to maintain harmony and unity within the church, and I thought it had some really good application for us. First, it says, when in disagreement, work hard at seeing the other point of view. There's always more than one way at looking at something, but it takes humility to set aside our personal point of view to see the other side of an issue. So work to try to understand another person's perspective. Second, when both sides of an issue seem valid, seek a wise compromise. Pursue harmony by wisely finding a middle ground that honors God and achieves unity in the church, remembering that wisdom comes from the Lord and he generously gives it to those who ask. Third, when conflict persists, care enough to work it through. Human relationships are very complex. Sometimes it's difficult to let go of a hurt or a disagreement. We carry it with us. Sometimes we nurse it, actually, to keep it alive. 
But we've been given the ministry of reconciliation according to 2 Corinthians 5.18. And that ministry was given to us in response to God's reconciling us to himself through Jesus Christ. So we really have no excuse except our pride not to work through our conflicts. And fourth, when you can't reach a resolution and you must disagree, try not to become disagreeable. I have seen us pout, shout, and act out when we are unable or unwilling to resolve problems with each other. In verse 14, we're told to do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God. So if all attempts to resolve conflict fail in all humility as a child of God, walk in integrity, integrity, glorify him, and let go of any unresolved conflict without carrying an attitude that's so disruptive to the body of Christ. This is why Paul encourages the Philippians to abound in love, knowledge, and all discernment, regardless of whether or not he was with them. His desire was for their continued growth in the Lord, for them to walk in the integrity of their calling in Christ Jesus, persevering in one spirit with one mind, striving together in their faith according to the gospel. He exhorted them to remain strong in their unity and not be afraid to suffer for the cause of Christ, just as they had seen him suffer and as he now suffered as a prisoner of Rome. This is the heart of a good shepherd for his flock to walk righteously in line with the word of God, growing strong together as a body. This is the heart of Pastor Xavier and other servants of God's people who genuinely teach according to God's truth, lovingly and directly for our personal edification, as well as the church as a whole. In verses 1 and 2, Paul urges the Philippians to take consolation or encouragement from the Lord to be comforted by his love as he comes alongside, speaking closely, it says in the Greek, to our hearts, intimately with tenderness, whispering his words of affection and and assurance. And it's like, to me, it's like how a mother kind of murmurs words of comfort to to her daughter. You know, if she's hurt or she's fearful, and she just holds her close, and she just talks very softly, but very reassuringly to her. That's what God does to us. That's what he calls us to do in consolation and encouragement with one another. Paul speaks of the fellowship of the Spirit, which is our communion with the Holy Spirit. It's our relationship and cooperation with the ministry of the Holy Spirit that activates our sanctification, regeneration, edification, instruction, gifts, and everything that we need for life and godliness. Next, Paul encourages them to have affection and mercy. And the King James Version of this actually says to have bowels, B-O-W-E-L-S, for affection. And that's from the Greek word meaning spleen, visceral, or, or gut. It's where the seat of tender affections reside, especially kindness, benevolence, and compassion. It's a deep, passionate feeling that connotes a heart in which compassionate mercy resides. So you can kind of see now how he's building the case for how we're to conduct ourselves in humility. All of these words have something to do with our attitude. And it would be very difficult not to be humble if we actually applied these attitudes in our lives and in our relationships toward others. We would have no room to have any discord whatsoever if we encouraged, if we loved, if we comforted. 
And Paul says that if we apply these attitudes, it will make his joy complete. His desire for the church was to be united with a common love for each other without discrimination or favoritism, in harmony, united in spirit and in their affections toward each other, of one accord, which literally means their souls all together in agreement and understanding as one in Christ in all their desires. Next, Paul gives them practical instruction for how to obtain the harmony of humility. In verses 3 and 4, he says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. He's telling us not to act out our selfish ambition. And and to me, selfish ambition is very self-centered, and I think we kind of get that. But there must be an ambition that is not selfish, and I think it's the ambition for a desire to know the word of God, to walk in the word of God, to minister the word of God. If we have an ambition for the things of God, there's no room for self. And that's what selfish ambition can do. It means a desire to put oneself forward, to have a partisan and fractious spirit. Another definition is campaigning or scheming for office, just like a politician. So if you're selfishly ambitious, guess who you are like? And then you look at our government today, it's almost completely dysfunctional due to partisanship and self-interest. Taking care of the business necessary to effectively run this government has taken a back seat to partisan bickering and posturing. They can't work together as a body at all. They have no humility, so they have no harmony. Selfish ambition and conceit is motivated by pride, and we're commanded not to let this be the reason behind anything that we do. Uh, Stephen Kendrick, who was the co-author of The Love Dare, said this. He said, almost every sinful action ever committed can be traced back to a selfish motive. It is a trait we hate in other people but justify in ourselves. And isn't that the truth? But God hates pride even more than that. Proverbs 6, 16 and 17 says, these things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue and hands that shed innocent blood. Proverbs 16:5 says, every proud in heart is an abomination, every one proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. So in the eyes of God, pride is not a virtue that he honors, nor one that we should cultivate in our own hearts. Lowliness of mind means having a humble opinion of oneself, a deep sense of one's littleness. We studied this also in Ephesians 4.2 where Paul implores us to walk worthy of our calling in Christ Jesus with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Unfortunately, many people think of humility and lowliness of mind as bowing and scraping down to someone. The ancient Greeks actually considered it to be a fault, not a virtue, to be humble. Pagan writers of that day generally associated the term with abject groveling. They saw it as distasteful and demeaning. But one commentator said that the humble person is not one who thinks meanly of himself. He simply does not think of himself at all. Having a humble heart doesn't mean we are the proverbial doormat for everyone to wipe their feet on. And I brought you guys a doormat. That's not what humility is about. 
but it does mean that we have a single-minded submission to the Lord to seek the good of others above our own interests. So instead of a doormat, this becomes a prayer mat where we ask the Lord for a humble heart in order to serve him and others because it's only on your knees that you can die to self, that you can give up your own rights and privileges and everything that you think is owed to you. Only when you're on your knees before the Lord can you be humble and selfish, selfless. Mahatma Gandhi said the best way to find yourself, which is what the world is always trying to do, is to lose yourself in the service of others. I think about the missionaries and Christians in other countries contending for the faith, thinking nothing of their personal safety or possessions, only of the need for others to know Christ. This is an example of humility in action. Think about Melissa and Vincent. She has been torn away from her home, all that she knew all of her life, and she's living in Africa in conditions that most of us probably would not be able to tolerate very well. But she's humble. She serves the Lord. She's joyful. You ever see the look on her face? The smile is that of joy. That's what Paul's talking about, the joy that comes from humility, setting aside one's own needs for the sake of others. So the practice of the harmony of humility shows us that we must maintain healthy personal relationships for a healthy church through prayer and communion with the Spirit, asking him to reign over our flesh. We must be mindful of our attitude and how the way we treat others affects those around us in the harmony of the church. And when disagreements do happen, as they will, we must work hard to understand others' perspective, seek a wise compromise, work through conflicts without shutting people down, practice the ministry of reconciliation. Don't pout, shout, or act out when you can't resolve your problems. Walk in integrity as, a, as children of God, glorifying him in unity with the body of Christ. These are just some of the ways that we can foster unity in the church the way God intended it to be. But as we know our loving Father loves us and knows how weak we are, he doesn't call us to do something that he doesn't equip us for. So he gave us his son as an example to follow, as the model of humility in verses 5 through 11. He says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. This passage gives us Jesus as our model of humility, demonstrated through his humanity. And it begins with our minds. We're commanded to have the same mind as Jesus. This means we are in agreement with his way of thinking, in harmony with his thoughts, and having the same attitude as the Lord. And I just wonder sometimes, you know, how, how can we do that? How can I do that? How can I be more like Christ? But God is so good to show us that we are not the first to ask this question. The Corinthians actually were the first. And this is how Paul answered in 1 Corinthians 2.16. He says, For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in us. 
That's how we get on the same page as Jesus in our minds and in our attitudes, by drawing on the enabling of the Holy Spirit to bring our thoughts captive and focused on the thinking and the things of God. And what kind of mindset did he have? Jesus had a mind of selfless humility and service, self-denial, and an abandonment of his heavenly rights and privileges, which he had access to in his incarnation, but that he chose not to exercise in his humanity. This is the ultimate model of humility. God became man and opted not to lay claim to his divine rights of deity. But this is so unlike us. We want our rights, and we usually want them now. We're so quick to say, that's not fair when we think our rights have been violated. Well, news is life isn't fair, but God is just. And we have to trust him to provide what is right and righteous for our lives. There is no right I can claim on earth that is greater than the righteousness I have before God in heaven through Christ Jesus. Merriam-Webster defines a right as something to which one has a just claim, such as the power or privilege to which one is justly entitled. And I think that just sums up who Jesus was altogether. He had a right to claim the power and privilege associated with his equality with God, but he didn't. He chose not to exercise aspects of his deity. He laid them aside. He also didn't lose his divine attributes, however. He merely added humanity to them being in the form of God. And this is the only reference used of Jesus in the New Testament in this particular passage. Being in the form of God, he couldn't deny the exact essence of who he was, but he could void the usage of his divine nature for the sake of serving others. The Lord Jesus Christ was God before his incarnation, during it, and after his death. He never stopped being God, never However, he did choose not to display his full deity while in human form. He emptied himself of his glory. He veiled his power and sovereignty to become a bondservant, a slave. And I think it's very interesting to note that Paul uses the same word for bondservant for Jesus as he does for himself in chapter 1, verse 1. And it's doulos, and we've heard this word before. It means a voluntary slave, one who gives himself up to another's will. Someone devoted to another to the disregard of one's own interests. And I just remember um, one year during the Christmas shoebox outreach down in Mexico, and I remember watching uh, Christy Marufo. And you guys remember our, our beautiful sister in the Lord and, and, you know, how tall and stately and beautiful she was. But I just remember watching her, and whenever she would hand a shoebox to one of the little children, she would bend all the way down and get eye to eye and face to face with them. And I watched her do that every single time she gave a, a shoebox to one of those little kids. Now, I don't know if some of you know this or not, but she had, you know, periodic back problems. She ignored the possibility of injuring her back for the sake of bending low to serve those children. She esteemed them, even as children, better than herself. And isn't this the model of humility Jesus gave us? He lowered himself to come in the likeness of men, setting aside his deity and his rights so he could walk with us face to face, feeling our pain, our fatigue, our stress. He gave up his glory so he could share it with us. He gave up his intimacy with God so he could be face to face with us. 
He gave up his authority and sovereignty so one day we could rule and reign with him. He gave up his spiritual wealth so that we could inherit his eternal riches. Jesus came in the likeness of men but without sin, humbling himself in obedience to God the Father to a painful and shameful death on the cross, temporarily separated from God the Father as he bore our sin. He gave up so much so he could give us so much more. He humbled himself so we could be lifted up, seen as righteous before God because the son wasn't too proud to decrease so we could increase. He lived as a supreme example of humility and surrender to God's will. So if the son can humble himself, what excuses do we have? None. Will we choose to give up our earthly rights for heavenly righteousness? Jesus gave up his heavenly rights for earthly humility. That's the model of humility Jesus has given us. But his earthly humility wasn't without earthly and heavenly reward. It says in verses 9 through 11, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Since Jesus Christ was a humble, obedient bondservant, God the Father lifted God the Son up to the highest rank and power of supreme majesty in the universe. And when it says exalted him, exalted in the Greek is, is uh, hyperupso, and it only occurs one time in the New Testament. And it means that Jesus was super, mega, uber exalted by God. Can you imagine that? Super, mega, uber exalted by God. God ordained that at the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, everyone in earth, on earth, and under the earth, both man and angel, saved and unsaved, demons and redeemed, everyone in every tongue, will bow down and worship and openly acknowledge him as Lord, Savior, and Messiah. And just as Jesus was humbled for God's glory, he will be exalted for God's glory as well. John uh, records in John 17, verses 1 through 4, that Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son also may glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And now, O oh Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. What a reunion that must have been when Jesus went up to be with the Father. The Son completely restored to the Father with all his majesty and glory, just as he was before the beginning. I, I, you know, the, the, the song I can only imagine, this is what I can hardly imagine, that reunion. But our day is coming soon and very soon, ladies. Our day will be here so the Lord's reward for his selfless, sacrificial, obedient model of humility was exaltation beyond exaltation. And reward is waiting for us as well, but the operative word is waiting. James tells us to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift us up. 
Matthew 23:12 says, "Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted." And if you notice these passages in the tenses that they're in, humble is always in the present tense, but lifted up and exalted are always in the future tense. We are to wait for our reward in heaven, where our true treasure is and where neither moth nor rust destroy. This is part of our reward and why we are to have humble hearts before the Lord, looking to him as the model of humility to follow. We have to start with having the mind of Christ in agreement with his thinking and in harmony with his thoughts. We have to have a mind of selfless humility and service with self-denial being at the core in an abandonment of our own rights and privileges. And we have to become a bondservant for Jesus, a voluntary slave surrendering our will in regard for and care of another. And we have to humble ourselves today for a reward tomorrow, knowing that God's promises are true, just as true for us as they were for his son. And lastly, we're going to look at the ministry of humility in verses 12 through 30. 12 and 13 say, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Now, I'm thinking that given the model of humility in Jesus Christ he's just given them, Paul makes a heartfelt appeal to his beloved church family to be obedient to his teaching, as they have always been when he was with them, but especially now that he was apart from them. He's asking them to apply the things he's taught them toward their sanctification in Christ. Paul isn't saying the Philippians should work to achieve their own salvation. He was just reminding them of their responsibility to abide in the Lord Jesus Christ, yielding to the Holy Spirit who enables them through the process of sanctification to be obedient to the calling of humility and submission. 1 John 2.6 says, He who says he abides in him, being Jesus, ought himself also to walk just as he walked. I'm just really very excited, as I hope you guys are, when it comes to our theme for our retreat this year, Walking with God. And I'm looking forward to seeing all the different ways that God has given us to walk with him. But following the example of Jesus is just one of those ways. Paul is telling believers to keep on working out to completion, to ultimate fulfillment, continuing to do our part to stay close to and right with God. We should be fearful of disappointing him and falling short of the mark he has set for us. Now, this is not the type of terrifying fear that you usually see in the scary movies that Hollywood conjures up. It's a reverential attitude born out of an awareness that God has expectations for us. And even though he is a faith in that he is just and faithful to forgive us our sins, our sins still offend his holiness. And we must constantly be conscious of that and be on our guard, not trusting ourselves. Because in our flesh, we cannot be trusted. It was an excellent uh, study um, last Friday at our ministry school. Pastor Terry LeBeau um, did a study on falling from grace, and it was about Peter and what happened to Peter when he denied Jesus Christ three times. And it was all because Peter was too self-confident and that it became a trap for him. Pride is a trap. Self-confidence and self-reliance is a trap. So when the world tells you you should have more self-esteem, they're basically laying a snare for you. 
You gotta avoid it. You gotta stay away from it. It's a trap. First Corinthians 10:12 warns us of that trap. It says, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. However, just as God did not abandon Peter, he doesn't abandon us either. As we yield, abide, persevere, he faithfully completes the work he has begun in us. The Holy Spirit works to produce the good fruit in us he desires, bringing him pleasure and gaining his approval. Next, in verses 14 through 16, Paul exhorts us to refrain from griping and bickering and to maintain a godly reputation before the world. He says, do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Ladies, the world is watching us. They quickly jump on almost any mistake Christians make, regardless of how minor or egregious it may be, all the while ignoring the gross immorality going on all around them. But as I said earlier, we're children of God, and he has expectations of his children. And that's part of probably what's wrong with the world today, because so little expectations are made, or the wrong expectations are made on the children. But God has standards of conduct for us, and they do not include muttering and criticizing each other. Truly humble servants do not allow dissension to taint their service to their masters. And I haven't watched Downton Abbey or anything like that, but I've watched a lot of British programs, and a lot of them where they had servants. And the servants were probably some of the most upright people in these whole, you know, societies. But they would never think of doing anything in public or in private for that matter, that would cast aspersions on their masters. They were very upright in their conduct. They did not want to bring shame or dishonor to their masters. It just wasn't done. We carry out the ministry of humility before the whole world, so we are to conduct ourselves with integrity and purity and be above reproach. Noreen reminded us that we're to be imitators of God, not allowing the things that the world does to even be named among us as is fitting for saints. Today, we call it blowing our witness. So it's important that we strive to measure up to the standards set for God's children, purposing to be a light in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. We're to let our light so shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Only through humility can we minister to the world around us. We're often the only Bible most people will ever read. We are the gospel of hope to a world that is perishing. This kind of ministry cannot and does not thrive in the energy of our flesh, but through the work of the Spirit in us to be those living epistles to a lost generation. Paul wanted the Philippian church to maintain their witness for his ultimate joy to present them to the Lord as the fruit of his labor. In verses 17 and 18, Paul refers to himself as being totally committed to the ministry of humility and how it brings him such joy. He says, yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. 
The analogy Peter gives here is, I mean, sorry, Paul gives here is the ceremonial practice of pouring wine on a sacrifice on the altar. And that wine, when it's poured onto that hot fire, it evaporates into steam. And as that steam rises up, it's, it's a drink offering and it's a sweet aroma to God, according to Numbers 15.7. But even this burning away of his energy gave him joy because it brought God pleasure. And Paul's desire for his good friends and spiritual children was for them to get to the same joy from his example through the sacrifice and service of their faith. We should consider it a privilege to be poured out and used up for the cause of Christ. Sometimes ministry is exhausting. It makes lots of demands on our time and energy. We minister to so many people in our lives, our family at home, family outside the home, school, coworkers, church, the grocery store, our hairdresser, on and on. We have lots of opportunities to minister. The challenge is to continually strive to walk worthy of our calling as children of God, to be joyful as ministers of humility in a world that is dark and depraved, even if it's difficult at times. We can rejoice if we stay humble and allow the Lord to use us, becoming a sweet aroma to him, sharing the good news of the gospel with a dying world. And then lastly, in verses 19 through 30, Paul has others who also practice the ministry of humility. He says, but I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state, for all seek their own not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him at once as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. Timothy was Paul's spiritual son, whom he also considered a fellow bond servant of Jesus Christ. And he planned to send him to the church in Philippi to find out how the church was doing. He had... He was like-minded, and that carries through to the same care and concern that Paul also had for the church. This was particularly important to Paul since there were others he was aware of who were self-serving and not about the Lord's business. Timothy could be trusted not to allow his own agenda to interfere with his ministry there at the church. He had the ministry of humility to look to in Paul with Christ as the supreme example. The church was clearly familiar with Timothy through his previous travels on Paul's second missionary journey, and Paul reminded them of his proven character, which means that Timothy had been tested before and shown faithful. And we have to ask ourselves, have we been tested and shown faithful? Can you be trusted to carry out instructions without adding your own agenda? Are you humble enough to submit and subordinate your will to those over you? 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 13 exhorts us to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. Paul is consistent in his themes, respect and a theme for others, esteem for others above ourselves, live in peace with each other. In Paul's eyes, Timothy knew well the principles of the ministry of humility, and as such, he could serve him, the church, and most of all, God. And then Paul turns his attention to Epaphroditus, also a member of the Philippian church who had been sent to minister to him in prison. 
It says, yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need, since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick almost unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I sent him the more eagerly, that when you see him again you may rejoice, and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such men in esteem, because for the work of Christ he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. Once again, Paul mentions the common thread in a relationship necessary for the ministry of humility. He considered Epaphroditus a brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier. And he was sent to Rome to minister to Paul with their love gift and words of comfort for the apostle. However, while Epaphroditus was there, he became sick, and he knew that his church family would be concerned about him. So Paul decided to send him home to spare the church any additional sorrow, recognizing that they already worried about him in prison. Notice it was Paul who decided to send Epaphroditus home. Epaphroditus didn't ask to be sent home, even though his illness almost killed him. He apparently was willing to stay with Paul and do whatever it took to make any sacrifice necessary to carry out his ministry to the imprisoned apostle. He did not allow his own severe infirmity to be reason for him not to complete the task he had been given. Then Paul sets aside his own interests and sends him back in anticipation of the joy that it would bring the church. He adds they should hold him in esteem because he was willing to do the work of Christ, not regarding his life to minister to Paul. Epaphroditus was another example of someone who knew that to be involved in the ministry of humility, not only must you die to self, but you may also have to die to life. For this reason, missionaries regularly become martyrs, pastors are persecuted and imprisoned, and Christians are murdered just for what they believe. Are you committed enough to Jesus Christ to humbly serve him at any cost? One day soon we may be tested in that, ladies. I pray the humility we receive from the Holy Spirit will enable us to be tested and proven faithful. Tonight we've learned that the harmony of humility in that God commands unity and causes, calls us to maintain healthy personal relationships for the unity of the church prayerfully asking the spirit to reign over our flesh, to be mindful of our attitude toward others and how it affects the harmony of the church, and to take steps to resolve disagreements whenever possible. We have the model of humility in Jesus Christ, and that starts with having the mind of Christ in agreement with his thinking. It's self-denial and an abandonment of our rights and privileges. We become bond servants of Jesus voluntary slaves, surrendering our will to him and to the service of others. And we humble ourselves today for an eternal reward tomorrow. And then we can apply to the ministry of humility, and that's carried out before the whole world, where we are to conduct ourselves with integrity and purity and above reproach. We are reminded that we are to be a light and the gospel of hope to a world that is perishing. And we need to be t prepared, ladies, to be tested and shown faithful, humble enough to submit and subordinate our will to those in authority over us. This is tough stuff. 
but we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for your examples of humility. We thank you for the ministry that you've given us, Father. We thank you that you make it so clear that you call us to humility and harmony in order to honor you, Lord God. We ask now, Father, that we stay on our prayer mats, Lord, petitioning you and your Holy Spirit to do the work in us necessary to be useful to your service, Lord God. We love you and we thank you. And we lift these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen.